Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bank Vic. Peter Butts was a tough detective in Victoria Police. He joined as a 16-year-old cadet in 1972 and spent some time in uniform before joining the CIB. Peter worked with the second-hand dealer squad and the homicide squad. He was then promoted to sergeant and went to Russell Street Special Duties, Paran and St Kilda CIB before joining the armed robbery squad. While Peter was at the robbers, he dealt with the notorious gunman Raymond John Denning. Peter was promoted to senior sergeant and worked at the crime cars and back at the homicide squad before he finally retired at 41 years of age. After leaving, he set up a transport investigation company and is especially talented on the drums. Welcome to the crime couch, Peter. Good morning. Thank you, Rochelle. Good to be here. Why did you join Victoria Police? Oh, well, in those days, I, I guess, was uh, influenced by the um, the police attending the school, I guess. And then uh, we had a friend of the family who was, at that stage, a young constable who befriended me, and it just uh, followed suit from there. You worked in the armed robbery squad during the 1980s. Now, if you think back at this time, it was really the golden era of armed robbers and bank robberies. What were those days like working in there? Well, in comparison to today, uh, the bank robberies per se are relatively um, far less common than they were in those days. And uh, I would think average you might uh, attend uh, two or three bank robberies a week in those days, as well as armoured cars. And uh, because we were so busy with those uh, armed robberies, we, we didn't even uh, consider the, the chemist shops or the service stations or the 7-Eleven stores as part of the armed robbery squad criteria, unless there was a a, a continual um, uh, operation where uh, it was uh, needed uh, more uh, deployment of personnel to, to monitor these various locations, basically. What was it like working in the robbers in those days? It was fairly full on. Um, long days. Uh, those uh, days too... Um, uh, the armed robbery squad members, if we'd had listing devices installed in various premises, we would actually monitor those listing devices by uh, uh, living or hiring a flat or another house nearby, so we'd work on a 24-hour rotating shift. The surveillance unit, the um, uh, the undercover dog teams, as, as they were known, we would travel with them to ensure, one, their safety and, and to see what was going on by following those uh, known uh, criminals around the place and taken from there was very busy. We heard um, from another armed robbery squad uh, detective, uh, Ken Ashy Ashworth, about the arrest of two of Australia's most dangerous crooks, Russell Mad Dog Cox and Raymond John Denning in uh, Doncaster in the late 1980s. 
Uh, when did you first meet Raymond John Denning and why, Peter? Interesting, uh, the day that Cox and Denning were arrested out there in Doncaster, I had received a phone call at the armed robbery squad from the security van people uh, saying that they believed that they were being followed by a suspicious vehicle uh, with Queensland number plates on. And then uh, the van went to the shopping centre, uh, Ray Carrion, Ray Denning and a female left the car and uh, shortly uh, thereafter uh, an unknown person turned up and Denning went for a ride with that person, came back. Uh, later identified as Russell Cox, and they're all arrested at the scene. Now, Denning was uh, unknown to Victorian uh, police in those days. He was a New South Wales uh, criminal, a notorious criminal who had uh, escaped virtually from nearly every jail in New South Wales, had spent his entire uh, adolescent and adult life in jail for um, very serious crimes of the armed robberies and the assaults and all of those things. He was also a a very active uh, participant of the New South Wales Prisoner Action Group and uh, was very keen to ensure that the authorities provided the the conditions that the prisoners, he felt, deserved. On one occasion I remember he escaped from Sydney and uh, a 60 Minutes show actually featured him on it. I think they actually interviewed him while he was still on the run. And he walked in and um, uh, quite clearly left his uh, full handprints all over the front door of the CIB headquarters in Sydney, basically saying that if he um, uh, he would give himself up, more so for the fact of getting better um, detail, getting better uh, conditions for the prisoners in jail. How did I meet him? It was quite uh, strange, really. I had a phone call from a Detective Sergeant Arnie Teese from the New South Wales Homicide Squad in uh, late 1988 uh, when Cox and Denning were arrested. And they were charged with a number of offences that they'd committed in Victoria. And, of course, Denning uh, was held on remand at Pentridge in those days. And uh, Sergeant Teese came down and uh, had indicated that he had fairly strong connections with Denning because Denning was uh, quite pivotal in in their investigation of the Hilton bombing. And uh, we arranged to go out and visit Denning at at Pentridge, where I first met him with Teese. He indicated that uh, he was prepared to plead guilty to all the charges that he was facing here in Victoria as a result of the arrest and also agreed to provide uh, information that he knew or thought would be very beneficial to our investigations into the murder of a fellow called Dominic Hefty, an armoured guard, an armoured guard uh, officer who was shot in 1988 in uh, Brunswick Square in Brunswick. The condition was, which was quite an, uh, unusual, normally the, the, uh, the criminals want to do everything for their own advantage by giving other people up, as the word said, as, as the going was in those days. But all he simply wanted to do was plead guilty, provide the information on the basis that we could guarantee that any sentence he received in Victoria, that under the uh, Interstate Transfer of Prisoners Act, that he would do that time in New South Wales, not in Victoria, 
because quite simply, he did not know anyone or have any contacts in the Victorian uh, prison system. How would you describe Raymond John Denning? Well, he was an, an unusual character. Um, I wouldn't say that we we befriended each other, but we, we had a, um, a, a trust in each other's um, positions, I guess. Uh, it was very dangerous for him to be giving us information, and of course it was uh, almost treated uh, from our windows, or why is this person doing what he's doing? Quite unusual. Bank Vic was founded by police in 1974 to help members get a better deal on banking. Things are better today, but Bank Vic's purpose is the same to serve the police better than the other banks with great rates and personal service. With a branch inside Victoria Police Centre and mobile lenders visiting stations or available by appointment, they're available where and when it suits you. Bank Vic get police because they've been helping them with their banking for nearly 50 years. To find out more, go to bankvic.com.au slash thecrimecouch. Bankvic is the trading name of Police Financial Services Limited, ABN 3307651661. Denning was the first man ever to escape from the maximum security Grafton Jail. Now, what sort of kudos or what sort of status did he have in the criminal world? Oh, he was very, uh, very held, held in very high esteem. Um, uh, I often relate the story of, of uh, Russell Cox. Now, the police Australia-wide have been searching for Russell Cox for 10 years or more, Australia's most wanted. Ray Denning escaped from Goulburn Jail. Within a matter of a few days, he'd uh, made contact with Cox's brother in uh, Queensland, uh, the surname of Snitzling, which, which is Cox's real name, and uh, arranged a car, purchased a car, came to Melbourne within... 15 minutes of arriving in Melbourne, he's meeting face-to-face with Russell Cox, where police had tried to chase him for 10 years, so he was very, very well connected as far as the criminal uh, scene went in those days. With that sort of a network, I mean, would those guys have previously known each other because they've done time together, or would he just know of Cox? Oh, no, they were very close. Uh, They'd spent time together at Katingle and and other jails in Sydney and uh, had planned to uh, escape... um, uh, with, with a fellow called Roy Pollitt, um, Denning, Cox and one other, one or two others had a plan on escape. But whilst um, Denning and Pollitt and the others were appearing in court that day, Cox decided he would he didn't want to be left to last, so he escaped by himself and left the others behind. So they spent a lot of time together uh, over the years. What was your response to Denning deciding that he was going to be a give-up, an informer? Because you and I both know that that's, that is almost a death sentence for most prisoners and most people that have done time inside. What was your response when he, when he said that he was going to be an informer? It wasn't exactly in those words. He was just basically saying he was prepared to talk. And, of course, he knew the risks that he was facing with that. And... Um, when we uh, took a detailed statement from him um, over a period of many hours, we actually did a video and uh, and I asked uh, uh, Denning uh, why he was giving the information that he was to us, which was vital. Um, 
and all of the information about Cox and others of the crimes that he and them had committed uh, alone or together. And he simply said to me, he said it was like this, he'd lost faith in the criminal code, particularly with Cox, inasmuch as um, initially a fellow called Victor Pierce was charged with the murder of Dominic Hefty and others. And uh, during their time of incarceration in, uh, in Melbourne, Cox had uh, admitted to, um, to Denning that he, in fact, with two others, uh, Mark Moran and Sando Mercury, were responsible for the murder of Hefty and was gloating at the fact that someone else had been charged with that crime and that he was felt himself was in the clear. And for whatever reason, uh, as strange as it was, Denning could not cope with that uh, ideology of you know, being happy that someone else was charged with the crime that you committed. And he simply said he just lost all faith and trust that he ever had in Cox from that time on, that he could never trust him again. And that the fact that he'd spent so much time in, of his life in jail, he felt that the only way he could probably get out was start uh, providing that information and make a new life for himself. How rare was it for a crook of this calibre, Pete, to roll, especially on his old partner, our Mad Dog Cox? Well, the detectives from those days will soon tell you that most of the crooks give each other up. Make no mistake about that. This was quite unique in, in itself, that um, he was uh, a person of such notoriety and so many contacts and so... Uh, committed to the welfare of prisoners in the jail system that it was, yes, a true surprise. But he wanted to, I think, at the end of the day, make a better life for himself outside rather than inside. So what are some of the details that he gave you about Cox? Oh, he um, he provided information on, uh, on a number of armed robberies, uh, specifics I can't particularly recall, you know, at the moment. But uh, certainly... Uh, uh, a murder involving a um, an underworld figure down the peninsula here many years beforehand. number of armed robberies that both he and Cox had been responsible for uh, up and down the east coast of, of Australia. More so um, uh, about Cox's uh, actions and what he was doing on the run and what have you. So he was fairly well informed through his own contacts. Um, he didn't have a lot of... Uh, time to talk about the crimes he'd been uh, involved in because, by and large, he'd spent the majority of his life in jail. So, He even gave evidence in the inquest of the shooting of that security guard, Dominic um, Hefty. What did that result in? It simply resulted in a, uh, a magistrate, uh, Brian Clothier, uh, as a result of an affidavit, uh, producing or actually authorising an arrest warrant for uh, Sando Mercury, who was later arrested and later convicted uh, uh, on the evidence primarily by DNA, of blood found at the scene and, and his own blood. And that would have made Denning happy because basically then his criminal code would have been uh, upheld. Oh, sure. And... Uh, but it was well and truly known within the system uh, in New South Wales and here that what Danny had, had been doing. And, uh, and he only had a, a short period of time to serve in New South Wales, as I remember. And he was held in protection in Long Bay and was quite committed to, to giving evidence and quite happy to, to meet and, and talk about things. And I remember on one particular occasion, um, 
speaking with him in Long Bay where he was in protection. And he was in a particular unit where to prepare him for release into the uh, community in general, they placed him in a, uh, a unit which was more like a very tiny self-contained flat where they had a very small courtyard. I think you even had a, a pet budgerigar in a cage and also a small kitchenette where they were encouraged to learn to live or look after themselves when they were released. Mm-hmm. And the governor was telling me that uh, they would order their food and, of course, he ordered the, the standard steak and everything else and and the governor walked in and he was cooking his steak one night and just saw that there was a, a pot of boiling water on the stove and here's a lump of uh, I fill it or rump steak just boiling up in the water. <laughs> and when asked uh, how, uh, what was he doing, he said, well, that's how I thought he cooked steak. He'd never supported or looked after himself in any sense of the word from from childhood. What was it like visiting him in that protective custody? Because it must be a fairly tenuous existence, was it? Well, he's so institutionalised that they. Um, it was just it's like any one of us winning Tats Lotto uh, to be taken out of the, the general run-of-the-mill prison yards and lock-ups and lockdowns and all those things. He was virtually allowed to live his own life in there with, with a few um, of the facilities, you know, the, the TVs and what have you offered to him where he could learn to live, hopefully cope, be able to cope better when he got outside. Was uh, Denning signing his own death warrant by informing? Oh, absolutely. And he uh, he was well aware of that. Uh, he, he had befriended a, a female whose name I just can't recall at the moment, but I had spoken to her on on many occasions during the time he was in custody in Melbourne and in New South Wales. And this is what happens in in the jail system, is that this woman, who was a very respected uh, woman from a uh, middle-class family, I think she was a widow at the time, but actually became infatuated with with Denning. And she corresponded with him uh, in jail by way of letters, which, which Denning had showed us. And he had a fond attraction to her. And I mean that in more so in a plutonic way than, than anything else. And she was prepared to do anything that she could do to ensure that he would come out uh, and resume a life as normal as he could with her help. And um, that was another reason where he, he knew that if he got out of jail, at least he would have someone there on his side to help him. So it was a wasn't just a matter of giving up so I can get out of jail. It was a matter of wanting to create for himself a completely different life than what he'd been used to for 30-odd years. Do you think prisoners like Denning are capable of rehabilitation? Oh, well, uh, Denning never really had the chance. You know, uh, I recall now that uh, Mick Kelly and I at the Homicide were supposed to go and uh, visit him um, in Paddington. And we got the call... Uh, the morning before we were due to go, that he'd uh, been found uh, dead uh, in a what was assumed to be a, an overdose of, of drugs or heroin. But quite amazingly, in my dealings with him, he uh, he was a cigarette smoker, but he said he'd never used drugs or alcohol because, quite simply, he, he was in jail all his life. He never got into the situation of being a, a drug addict or, or an alcoholic. So what was your response when you heard that he died of a hot shot? Exactly that, died of a hot shot. 
someone had, um, I don't know if he was preparing to give evidence up there at that time or, or still coming down here for the for the Mercury trial, but someone got to him, there's no doubt about that. He just dropped his guard and uh, he was living, uh, I think, in a, in a boarding house or type in somewhere in Paddington. You left the job, Peter, at 41 years of age. Why, do you, why did you feel you wanted to retire so early? Well, joining as cadet at 16, um, I got to a stage, I guess, in my mid-30s, I thought I really never wanted to, to spend my entire working life as a copper. And uh, I was on the road there just under 25 years, and I'd probably crammed with quite a bit of work into those 25 years of the place I'd worked at. And a lot of them on secondment, you know, the early days when you were a detective before you actually were, were, were gazetted a vacancy, you would do some temporary duties like the second-hand dealer squad. Um, out of the divisions, uh, you would be seconded in to other squads to help out with manpower. I uh, worked uh, on secondment with the team investigating the Tonong North murders with the homicide you work at the various divisions. I'd seen a lot in my my 25 years on the street. And I just thought I just never wanted to spend my entire working life as a copper. And at 42, to me, was the right time to get out. My future would have been as a senior sergeant level and beyond that would be more administrative than, um, than operational. And in my day, you join a job because... Um, uh, you wanted to jump fences and lock crooks up and, and run round. When you get uh, beyond that, well, the job becomes administrative more than operational. Do you miss anything about uh, being a detective? Well, not to, to me. My time in the police force was another lifetime ago. So I don't dwell on the fact that, that, that I left. I'm not sorry I left. Uh, I don't speak badly or down of the police force. I mean, uh, times change. We've got to move on. People have got to change. Um, I uh, I have no regrets, and uh, and I still have a lot of respect for for the police these days and the job they're doing in a very tough environment. Was it difficult? And and I know I've spoken to my father about the difficulty in in transitioning from being a a, a police member back into civilian life. Was that difficult for you to transition? Not at all. The fact is, I think police have got to learn that they must uh, keep a a strong social network of friends and acquaintances who are not police-related. There are many things to do in life without worrying about how many crooks you're going to lock up or how many court cases you've got coming. And you've just got to learn to adapt to there is life outside, and whilst you're in the job, learn to associate with people outside the job, not just police. How do you view your time in the job now? My time in the job? Well, I always remember Mick Miller saying at the opening of the sub-officers course for promotion to sergeant that uh, this job is just like a front row seat to the greatest show on earth, and exactly that's what it was for me. What advice would you give to police members that are, you know, about to transition or maybe to get out of the job? Make sure you plan to go into something else that you know a little bit about. Now, I hear it so often that uh, people can't wait to retire. They should realise that you can only mow the lawn so many times a week, you can only go play golf so many times a week until you get bored with it. And there's plenty 
of opportunities out there that you can create for yourself by using your own bit of mouse. But the most important thing for them to do that if they're leaving at a younger age is be prepared to work hard. Because if you don't work hard, you will fail in the general community. Well, finally, Pete, uh, what is, what's next for you? What's uh, in your, uh, you know, sits in front of you at the moment? What are you looking forward to? Oh, hopefully uh, getting out of this prostate cancer issue we have at the moment. But that's all fine. It's all going well and uh, living life as we should. Just enjoy life, surrounded by the family. Um, take it today as it comes, really. Just enjoy it. Only thing I say to people, the only thing you get from looking back is a sore neck. Thank you very much for sitting with me on The Crime Couch today, Peter. You're welcome. Thanks, Rochelle. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bank Vic. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch. 